Coming up next, to air is human, to be Helen is divine. Everybody, welcome to the bookening. My name is Nathan Albertson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I'm already regretting the pun that I made in the little intro thing. That was pretty lame. I apologize for that. I don't know if I apologize. Should I apologize for that, Brandon? Or was that was that a good pun or a bad pun? Or I wasn't quite sure I got it. To air is human. To be Helen. If we're gonna bring it under a microscope, then I really think it's just gonna make me feel worse about the crabbiness. It's not. But easy. is this supposed to relate to the book we're talking about? Yeah, Jane Eyre. To air. To e o y r e. To air is human. To, to Helen, because Helen's the angelic. Helen's the like angelic. Oh, like. Helen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I already forgot about her. Yeah, you yeah. remember Helen, the little girl that died in a corner like that? W h Auden <laughs> poem. You know which one I'm talking about? What's that? No, never mind. The w h Auden poem where a little girl dies in a corner. No, about Icarus. He's looking at the painting of Icarus, and then you know he talk, he talks about how we all die. I do Unknown. remember this poem. It's a great poem. Yeah, I will look it up and I will read it. Yeah, you should. You should. This is the bookening. This is the bookening. We rarely do all. poetry. Yeah, we did that. We did a couple episodes on poetry. Musée des Beaux Arts. Right, I'm going to introduce Jake first. Hi, Jake. Hi, Nathan. You're the pastor who's a master of reading. Uh huh. You've had a pretty long day. I have. I feel like Brandon's had something of a long day, and I've had something of a longer day, but you've had a longer day than us. But that's okay. We're talking about Jane Eyre. Yeah. I declare it to be okay. I appreciate that. I need it to be okay. All right. Let's do this. I need it to be okay because we need some episodes. Weirdly enough, I imagine Jake and I drove the same distance today, but Jake had an emotionally exhausting day. There you sure. go. And that, we'll leave it at that. People will never know. Yeah. Our, our listeners will always wonder. Some people will probably figure it out. Yeah, people can figure it out if they, if they know us. But Muse, You want me to read it? Sure. Musée de Beaux-Arts. <clears throat> About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along, how, when the aged irreverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood, they never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches his innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to, and sailed calmly on. Ain't that the truth? That's how it happens. Terrible things happen. My life keeps going on. You don't even notice it, really. No. Or you see some ma- majestic thing falling out of the sky and you keep traveling on. Well, it's just like that Ray Bradbury story that Brandon wasn't here for, but we read that one. Didn't we read that for when we had Andrew Henry on? I don't remember. Maybe we didn't read that story, but that's one of my favorite Ray Bradbury stories. It starts with a rocket ship exploding and all these guys go flying out through space and it's just their last moments alive as they fly through space. They're, they've all got suits on, huh. but they're just flying through the black void of space and one of them burns up in the atmosphere and then we cut to a little kid who says look mom a shooting star yeah, it reminds me of uh when i was in uh, the only time i ever did debate mm-hmm. was the morning that which which uh, space shuttle exploded when we were in not the challenger uh, no yes what? the ch- we were alive for the challenger but there was another one that was much more recent than the challenger wasn't yeah it? we were all in we would have been late high school when this happened yeah i think that was not the challenger no challenger was the voyager we kids or is that a star trek they need to stop naming ships names that end in jer it exploded over Texas and people saw it happen and they were and a lot of people just thought it was a comet or something else that they were watching and instead you had 18 astronauts that just burned to death right above you. I don't know. I had a similar thought today actually. I was at, I guess people are going to know where I was. I was at a funeral and I was at a cemetery and the cemetery I was at is right next to a quarry and there was, you know, service outdoors, committal service and banging and Jack Cameron going on at the quarry. You got this sober thing where you're committing somebody's body to the ground and speaking about eternal things and the resurrection of the dead while some dudes going dudes are going about their nine to five and banging away on stone. 
the way people have for thousands of years. I had a thing like that happen where I was on the other side of it. I guess everybody's had this happen, but I was annoyed because a funeral procession was ruining my day because I couldn't drive to where I wanted to go because they had the you I know always, the cop on the. I always think about that when I'm in a funeral procession. I'm always imagining myself being. Uh, I'm sort of like coaching myself to not be annoyed. To not be annoyed when, when those times come, because when you're in the procession when, and people pull over and stop and they just stop and they wait the whole time and they don't creep forward and they don't blow by and they don't whatever, it's really sweet. It is. And when they show even the slightest bit of impatience, like I'm going to creep forward a little bit and then wait, and then I'm going to creep forward a little bit more and then it feels disrespectful and you just really appreciate people taking time to stop and ex- accept the fact that the bell tolls for all of us today mm-hmm. and everything else can wait for a few minutes. Yeah, you do. But being on the other end of that. Yeah, I was the jerk is, on the other end of it. It's total, just like, it can be, yeah. Oh no, I'm going to be late for my meeting or wh- whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> and it did occur to me at the time, like there are people driving past me who have had a central part. You know, there's a widow that's had her life. The person that slept in the bed next to her for 50 years is gone, eradicated. They have had a piece of their life, a piece of their existence just ripped away. And they're trying to process this. And I'm late for my meeting. Yeah. (laughs) But you are late. (laughs) Yeah, I was though. (laughs) The thing, that's the funny thing is that I'm not wrong. I mean, Life, I am wrong to be impatient, but what yeah. I'm not wrong about is life actually does go on and it's it's fascinating. And it's I've also slow. had the thought, I resent it. I resent the fact that everyone's not going to die with me. I mean, isn't it annoying that my grandchildren or something, if I have any, will will live, they get, they get to live on yeah. and I'm just bound to this tiny little piece of temporal existence or whatever. <laughs> there are all these other lives and it's everything humiliating. that are taking place that you'll never experience i just get a tiny little bit of time and i'm not kidding folks and just a tiny fragment of experience that can be had i'm i'm, I'm coaching this in irony because that's the only way to do it for the opening of a podcast that has couching nothing... it i think is what you meant yeah, Co- yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> i am quite famous we should tell people i'm famous for getting that wrong actually <laughs> i wrote an entire script <laughs> where <did. laughs> i wrote coach for couch <laughs> oh i was going along with it i thought it was like poet poetic poetic yeah no, ricky and Stu <laughs> yeah, were sitting was, on the coach it was it was the yeah it was the famous it was like the the creepiest ricky and Stu script if people know our the vill right and so it's like Stu sits down next to ricky on the coach but yeah death is a thing life is a thing one of the central mysteries of literature that it tries to get at nathan <laughs> One of the of, transcendental themes. The transcendental themes, yeah. No, I don't I don't mean to make light of any of this. It's just it does fascinate me how life goes on. Yeah, yeah, I guess well, Auden's I'm not gonna say it better than Auden. I was I mean, I was not being completely ironic there. That is one of the central themes of literature. Mm-hmm. Is the fact that you have I can't say that. I'd be a spoiler for Jake. I was about to say something from War and Peace. You have uh what's some death that we've read about? Well, there's always good old Robert Jordan touching the pine Yeah, you you have him, but how many Robert Jordans are there out there that'll never, we'll never hear their story, you know? Yeah. The Germans or the French have a word for it, and I don't remember what the word is, but there's a word for when you're walking through the mall. Not schadenfreude. No, it's not schadenfreude, but it's something kind of like that. Schadenfreude. 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 There is a word, though, that exists that either the Germans or the French, because the Germans and the French always have a word for everything, have for that feeling of suddenly... Like you're at the mall and you look around and you realize and you have a kind of this weird out of body experience where you're like, oh, all these people have lives. And from their point of view, they're the hero of existence. And you have this like feeling of otherness and outsideness and transcending the cosmos kind of thing. There's a word for that, but I don't know what the word is. I found a really fun article one time that was just words like that, words like schadenfreude. It just said European words that you should know. Yeah. And I'd love to find that article again because they were all super helpful things like that for concepts or ideas or things that we go through but that we don't have, quite have a word for. The silly thing about the Germans is that they don't actually have a word. They just are masters of the compound word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just add words to each other. And the French I don't mean, have word, li- I think- literally, schaden is sadness or something, you know, it's, if you say schade, it's too, that's too bad. It's, that's too bad. Freude is happiness. So it's Happiness at somebody else's sadness. Right. Schadenfreude. You just smash things together. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I can think of no better transition 
<laughs> oh no, what actually, is I, to air is... <laughs> to air is human. <laughs> What's that sound? It's the airplane going over. Indicating baggage check, because airplanes have baggage. This is the part of the show where we discuss the baggage that we bring to the book in question. And the book in question, of course, it is, of course, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte that we are discussing right now. Jake, what yeah. baggage did you bring to this book? I'd never read it before. Never read a Bronte book. Have a distaste and aversion to Victorian literature. So if anything, I had sort of a, oh no, is this going to be another Victorian thing that I don't like and have to pretend to like or... What Victorians have we read on the booking? We've done Dickens, obviously, which you're pretty famous for not being a huge fan of. Yeah. Dracula, which I think we all kind of liked for what it was. Frankenstein. Yuck. Boo. That was about that was about it. I didn't. I I came almost as a blank slate to this one, ready to a tabula rasa 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 tabula rasa. I think so. Yeah. Never seen any movies. If if I had asked no. you what Jane Eyre was like, I wouldn't have known. I would have said some romance, probably. You would have said romance at least. Okay, so you were you had that much. Well, it's a, a book that has a woman's name as a title, so. But I don't know. It's also I I, I Victorian romance. That's what I would have said or assumed and when you think victorians you think what long descriptive passages about leaves on pavements and boring stuff like that that don't add to the plot yeah and hyper sentimentalized over sentimentalized views of love and romance and children and women children and and women and stuff like that yeah you ain't wrong you ain't wrong well you might be in the case of jane Eyre. i don't know that it really has be it has different faults maybe i don't know if it has those faults brandon yeah what baggage did you bring to this book um, I had never read Charlotte Bronte before. Oh, I take that back. I had read Villette. Yeah, you read Villette for some weird reason. <laughs> but I had forgotten Villette. I don't really remember Villette. Uh, this leads us to a question. What's wrong with you? Oh, man, Nathan. <laughs> we should probably have a whole podcast <laughs> dedicated just to what's wrong with Brandon. Why Why did you read Villette? I guess it was for school. Yeah, it was for a class at IU. You read Villette, but you didn't. Why else would I read Villette? It's before? like, I've only ever listened to uh, <laughs> Maxwell's Silver Hammer. What's Hey Jude? And my favorite Steven Spielberg movie is always starring Richard Dreyfuss. What's Raiders of the Lot? You got to do one of those. That my works. favorite Dickens is Barnaby Rudge. What's all this about <laughs> Tell of Two Cities? <laughs> I've only Solo. seen Solo and it was terrible. So Star Wars must suck. And you know, those people are out there. They're mostly women. <laughs> and they're out there. All right, Brandon, you were saying? I didn't mind Villette when I read it. <laughs> I actually thought it was well written and entertaining i just wish i remembered anything about it i vaguely remember it being kind of like my impression of this novel through the first two thirds where it was a victorian jane austen so a more sentimental less wise kind of yeah but still but still a great writer yeah i mean you can't you can't argue that she's a good writer no you can't she can tell a yarn you could she's a bad writer i would argue it i think i will argue with these podcasts i think she's a better writer than dickens oh i agree duh yeah because i read her and yeah. enjoyed reading her. Okay, well, then I'll just say that. She Dickens. is a better writer than Dickens, except I will say, I think David Copperfield is still really well written. Yeah, she's not better than Dickens at his best, but she's she sure doesn't fail. I like that first like chapter of Bleak House. I mean, come on, that's... Yeah, no, that's great. Even that's Jake, great even Jake, even old Ebenezer Jake himself liked the first chapter of I did. Bleak House. I did like that first By the time chapter. the bookending is 10 years old, I will have won Jake over to Dickens. Here's the thing, though. We're quitting this year. Yeah. <laughs> this is the last year of the booking. <laughs> yeah. Here's the get... thing, though. There was poison in that drink that I gave you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Unless you get us to $1,000 by December 1st. Yep. We are stopping the booking. The words and of you Brandon Chastity hear... may not represent the reality of Warhorn you Media will never or hear... You will never hear our take on War and Peace. Well, hey, you know what? If you don't get us up to $750, we won't do the Chronicles of Narnia. If you do, though... We will. And if you get us up to that, and we're only like $100 away from that, guys. That's doable. We can do it. We can do that like we did Harry Potter last year. And $1,000 gets you Tolkien. So I'm going to say $1,500 gets you Chronicles of Riddick. Ooh. (laughs) $2,000 gets you Chronicles of. Just Chronicle, that movie Chronicle about the superhero thing or whatever. There we go. We will do all Chronicle related media. I'm sure there's other Chronicle things. So become the Chronicling. Yeah. 
<laughs> and this has been a valuable use of your time. <laughs> I think I just watched our Patreon drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're nowhere near Chronicles of Riddick level yet. No. How about this? If you don't get us to $1,500, we will do Chronicles of Riddick. There we go. <laughs> By December 1st. By December 1st. All right, Brandon. I just so- want to make demands of these people. We have so many listeners out there who are, and we have a small, small segment of you giving to the Patreon. <laughs> so come on, people. Yeah, it's not that much. I mean, a dollar, guys. A dollar. You, you just- person listening right now thinking, is he talking to me? Yes, I'm talking to you. Yeah. A dollar would mean a lot to us. Yeah, $500 I mean- would mean 500 times as much. Yeah, so if there's 500 out of you out there that has a dollar a month, you cannot spend on... Whatever you spend it on. Butter. Butter. <laughs> <laughs> Two diapers. Get some oil of Olay. What's that stuff? What's, what's cloth, a butter substitute? Buy cloth oil diapers. Oil. I've never been inside a supermarket like in my a life. It's like a lotion brand. Yeah, uh, oil of Olay, yeah. Oil. I can't believe it's not butter. Yeah, get some margarine. Margarine, yeah. Switch to oil of Olay and you'll stop wanting to use butter. Yeah. So Exactly. So, Brandon, you read Velette. It was your favorite novel. Yeah. And That's what I said. You loved it very much. The only other experience I've, I've read a lot of Victorian novels, mm-hmm. as people know. Mm-hmm. I've read all of, pretty much all of Dickens. I thought you were going to say all of the Victorian <laughs> novels. I've read every single <laughs> People pretty much know. <laughs> I've read all the Victorian novels. I've read all the novels. Yeah, I, I loved Victorian literature and especially Dickens. The one Bronte I had read in high school was her sister, Emily. Mm-hmm. I had read Wuthering Heights. Mm-hmm. And I have very mixed feelings about that mm-hmm. book. The Storm Moon Drong sort of. Emotions don't really do it for me. And you just in general, or just in general, you don't like storm. Storm. I mean, uh, what about I, drunk? I never was emo. I guess I was never drawn to the emo dark side. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think Wuthering Heights is pretty much the Victorian equivalent of emo. Wuthering Heights is to Jane Eyre as Temple of Doom is to Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'll agree with that. Yeah, Jane Eyre's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, it's just a classic. It's well constructed. It's got some dark elements, but and it's, I've got it's some a fun issues ride. with the way the story is told in the end. But mm-hmm. hey, and hey, Indiana Jones isn't the greatest hero. No, Rochester certainly is not the greatest. Nope. But in the end, spoilers. Yep. I like Jane Eyre. D- do tell. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, you're just like Rochester. Yeah, you're like Jane Eyre. Um, I'm, I'm ugly. <laughs> you're ugly. <laughs> I fell off a horse and hurt my leg. <laughs> <laughs> you tried to rescue people from a fire and got your eye gouged out by a beam. Yeah. That's not true, folks. Brandon did Had not my get wife his... in an attic. <laughs> you got your wife in an attic? No, she's been on. No, she hasn't been on. Why am I saying she's been on? I don't she's know. not crazy. No, she's not crazy. You do have a torture chamber. That's kind of like. The only thing that makes her crazy is for marrying me. <laughs> <laughs> you took yourself down a peg. I like it. My baggage is I like Jane Eyre fine. I remember. It being a perennial girl book that people read in the homeschooling circles that I was in. Many a homeschool woman liked it. I remember being a little annoyed by, nah, I won't say women, certain girls that really invested in it and thought of themselves as going on their own Aryan adventure. Not, not an Aryan adventure. <laughs> they were heretics. <laughs> These women worked for the Third Reich. <laughs> they were part oh, of the Hitler Youth. I was thinking of the Aryan heresy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that too. There's so many nice connotations for that word. So I remember associating Jane Eyre with a certain kind of stuffy person, namely a girl of about 12 to 18 who thinks she's going to find a Rochester and is interested in finding her own Rochester. The, the kind of girl that wants to fix a man, the kind of people that project date. You guys know about project dating? Yes. That's where you date somebody and you fix them and you find the most messed up. Now, spoiler alert, I think old Charlotte and old Jane might have been into project dating just a little bit because <laughs> there's some project dating going on in this novel. The people that are into project dating as a rule, the people that like bad boys and it's emos, but I didn't grow up with emos. I went to Christian school. So I grew up with very conservative uh, girls in dresses and, and, and jean. What are those jean things called? Jumpers? Jumpers. Jumpers. Yeah. And jean jumpers. Ooh, man. Denim jumpers. Those things. And well, that's kind of just like the 90s, though. Wasn't yeah. It? This is 90s homeschooling. There's a whole crowd of people listening right now that can that know what I'm talking about, though. The 90s jean jumper homeschooled girl is a type. And I'm with you. They, yeah, Brandon's with me. And they really like Jane Eyre. And I remember being aware of this even at the time and resenting the book a little bit for that. 
And 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 when I read Jane Austen, which I think was after I read Jane Eyre, the, the, it's always kind of stood in marked contrast to me. Like, oh, here's somebody that actually gets how relationships work. Here's somebody that's actually healthy for young women to read if they're processing it. If you're processing things incorrectly, then nothing's healthy for you to do. But, you know, Jane Eyre has some medicinal value. Or, no, no, no. Jane Austen. Sorry. Multiple Janes here. I was confused. Austen has some medicinal value. Jane Eyre. Maybe not so much. Remember being aware of that as a kid, probably, I don't know, 13, 14, but I also really liked the book a lot. And is this your first time to read it? No, no, no. Okay. This is, this is. You liked it a lot when he was 13 or 14. Right, I thought that's what you said. Yeah, yeah. I liked it a lot when I was 13 or 14. I liked it kind of despite myself because I understood it to be an obnoxious thing, a thing that obnoxious people liked and that they liked obnoxiously. All right. What'd you guys think about Jane Eyre? Where do you want us to start, Nathan? Let's well, let's go chronologically. I don't know. This is an interesting novel to tackle because there's lots of stuff in the second half to talk about with Rochester and St. John or St. John. We need a ruling on that. I guess I'll just say St. John because I'm assuming most of our readers probably think of him as St. John. But we don't want to skip over all the stuff at the beginning. What do you think about Mrs. What's-Her-Face? Jane's about the, about... so-called benefactor. Oh, yeah. Mrs. Uh, Reed. Yeah, Mrs. Reed. This is, cause How does this compare to... Because we've had... Harry the, Potter. How does it compare to Harry Potter? Fairly one-to-one at the beginning, I (laughs) would say. (laughs) This has to have been an inspiration. I mean, every great piece of literature was an inspiration for Harry Potter, but... Yeah, what wasn't? Yeah, I mean, but the idea of the the orphaned, abused child who's taken in by family that hates her and locks her up in the nursery and makes her sleep in a bed that's too small and sends her off to a boarding school where she finds herself, you know, I don't know. If there are any parallels there or not with Harry Potter. I can't think of any. Yeah. There's no Lord Voldemort. Nope. Yes, there is. His there name's no... Rochester. <laughs> there are no Horcruxes. Oh, wait. Yes, there is. Her name's Bertha. <laughs> and they do have to burn her. <laughs> There's no Dolores Umbridge. Oh, wait. St. John. Um, <laughs> you know who St. John's like? St. John is like Dumbledore because they both like to do these weird yeah. manipulative sh- crappy schemes with their protégés. Yeah. I, I was thinking... Go with me to India, but it's my wife. <laughs> the head of the school. What's the name of that school? Starts with the Dumbledore? Hogwarts? <laughs> yes, guys. Thank you. Oh, the look you of the withering disdain on Jake's face right now, folks. Uh, uh, what is that guy's name? Mr. Something. Lowood. No, not him. The the woman. She's like McGonagall slash Dumbledore. Oh, the nice oh, yeah. woman. And she also had a name that was fairly Miss Temple. Miss Temple, yes. Yes, <laughs> Miss Temple. You know, I am so bad at capturing the most obvious symbolism in books. I always, my brain just doesn't work that way. Well, I, don't, I don't really care that much about that. That's because of stuff. you're not looking for the transcendental themes, Nathan. Is that my you problem? You didn't get the difference between Tem- Miss Temple and Mr. Brocklehurst. <laughs> I mean, I think I got it <laughs> intuitively. Like <laughs> sausage. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Brocklehurst. Does sound like mm-hmm. a tasty sausage, though. <laughs> but I didn't think about Burns. I didn't think about Temple. Brocklehurst is Snape. That's who. It's early Snape. Yes unredeemed snape stand on the chair (laughs) i have a machine gun What are we talking? If there's one thing that we love, it's our, <laughs> it's our Alan Rickman impersonation. Bad. <laughs> well, it's good. It's so good. <laughs> it's so wonderful. <laughs> our listeners are just always like, I thought Alan Rickman's dead, and yet he's on this podcast. What happened? What were we talking about? Okay, Miss Helen Burns. Not Helen Burns. No, the I, names. I, we'll come back to Helen Burns. Yeah, let's start with Mrs. Reed. So the I house. Agree. Does that section work for you? Do you guys think it was cheesy? Or, I'm just gonna. No, uh, it all works. It's perfect. Is it? How does it compare to Esther? Esther and Bleak House. Blows her away. Blows her, Blows her out of the water. Brandon? Yeah. It's better than Esther. Does it hurt you to say this? No. Are you sure? I'm sure. I'm fine. Well, what's the difference? I mean, it's 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 blatantly manipulative in both cases. It's like the bad guy that's there basically for the purpose of oppressing the good guy. And then the good guy tells the bad guy off and it's really, you you pump your fist. And a lot of times in novels and books and stuff, what's the other thing that people like to, the, the storytelling medium? Movies. movies. Cinema. Yeah, cinema. I will feel really bad. I think I've used this example before, but there's a scene in Dead Poet Society where a dumb, stupid, stuffy kid comes up and makes an awful speech about the kid who just committed suicide or something like that. I don't know. It's been ages since I saw the movie. But he's he's basically just being nasty in a way that no real person would ever be nasty so that the hero can punch him and the audience can 
clap. And I don't really like it when books do when when they just set somebody up to knock them down. And Mrs. Reed, I guess you could maybe accuse her of that, but it doesn't actually feel like that. It feels like while having every opportunity to fall into that trap, it manages to bypass it. I'm wondering how it how it does it. So I think there are a couple of things, a couple of tricks that she uses to make it work. One, I just think she's got some fairy dust. And she's I, a good writer. She's a good writer. and That gets her over a lot of humps in this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets her over a whole lot of humps. But I think that if you get down into sort of uh, the mechanics of it, one, she's giving you the child's perspective. Mm-hmm. And the child, you don't, she's not um, patronizingly t- declaring to you the innocence of the child. She's giving you... Jane's perspective as a child. Right. And so what you have is Jane processing it all as a child who's been in those types of situations actually would in a way that rings true for one. So she takes it very personally. She has a skewed perspective on certain things. She gets irrationally, seemingly irrationally angry. And then, and then she's not perfect through it. Right. And so it's not through this sort of like filter through this lens of perfect childhood innocence. I don't know if that's clear, but... Well, all you have to do is compare it to Esther, where she's like, I buried my little dolly. Did Esther bury the dolly or did They both had a doll Mm -hmm. that they talked to and was their lone companion. Like it's, that is one-to-one with Esther, right? right? Esther had a doll that was her companion and she (laughs) talked to it and it was... But Jane somehow never feels like she's begging for our sympathy. She's just describing how she felt as a kid. And therefore it's sad. Right. Because you... You are able to look at that and see, do a little work. It's almost like it would be oversimplistic to say that Bronte gives you two and two Mm -hmm. and Dickens gives you four. Right. But that's part of it. Well, future just gives you the answer. Dickens is just like, this is how you're supposed to feel. This is how you're supposed to feel. Well, and the other problem with Dickens, especially with Esther, and Esther is one of my least favorite Dickens creations, Mm -hmm. if I'm just being completely honest here. And part of the problem with Esther, I still love Bleak House. I think the story is great, but you have to get past Esther. And part of the problem with Esther is that he just, he, she's one of these angelic female creatures. Right. That's not human. That Dickens just creates this woman that somehow is perfect. And she has her limitations, but she doesn't have sin. And that's one of, so with Esther, you never get the sense that she's actually a woman who ever can do anything wrong. Right. Um, and she, and even her insecurity is precious. Right. To Dickens. But with Jane Eyre, it's very different. She, has she is very faults. insecure. Say what? She has real faults. Yeah, she has real faults, real sins. And she and part, of, part of what works with this book is it is kind of a memoir to an extent that you have a mature author that's telling you the story. And that's still supposed to be Jane Eyre telling you the story. But she's looking back on her past and reflecting on it. And so there's that passage uh, where she says, where she says now she would have handled Mrs. Reed differently. I was just about to bring right? that up. That That to me is... A perfect example of an author catching themselves before they make a mistake. Because in that moment, I'm just like, I'm with Jane. I'm pumping my fist. I mean, it's an emotional, cathartic moment when she tells off this awful woman. But you take it even a step farther. You know, you you put one more toe forward and suddenly it becomes wish fulfillment. It becomes mean. It becomes they set up a straw man to knock it down. It becomes Dudley getting a tail. Um, although, actually, I don't think that J.K. Rowling really does all Dudley that bad of a job a with this yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but then she says she felt bad about it, and that's a really human response, whether Mrs. Reed was right or wrong. And there's this fear on Mrs. Reed, and suddenly you feel a little sorry for Mrs. Reed, and the moment just becomes much more real. That moment in particular, but also to what I was talking about with these dual perspectives that's happening in the mm-hmm. novel, which is an interesting facet of it. Yeah, absolutely. You have no so... This is, she just talked to Bessie. They were holding her in bed after the Red Room, I think. Mm-hmm. Remember that scene? She said, no severe. Oh, this is after she had took ill. And so the doctor had come to see her. And you kind of had the first. Taken best. ill. Say what? She got it sick. It sounded like you said took eel. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, she took that talking? eel out of the, she was shocking everybody with it. <laughs> Take uh, this, Mrs. Reed. <laughs> we read different books, didn't we? <laughs> uh. So no severe or prolonged bodily illness followed this incident of the Red Room. It only gave my nerves a shock of which I feel the reverberation to this day. Yes, Mrs. Reed, to you I owe some fearful pangs of mental suffering, but I ought to forgive you, for you knew not what you did. While rending my heartstrings, you thought you were only uprooting my bad propensities. And so throughout the novel, you get this mature person. And technically, you get that with Esther as well, but you don't ever get the sense that Esther grew to anything. No. 
Like even when she gets her sickness, what is it that Esther learns? Nothing. Well, with Esther, you always feel Dickens kind of nudging you in the side and saying, she's pretty great, right? Because she's like, oh, I I know I have no qualities. And that's supposed to tell you this woman has qualities. Like I said in our Dickens episode, I think that there are some complexities to Esther that I hadn't ever noticed before, but they're still kind of one-dimensional. Yeah, I think I defended Esther a little bit. I actually don't mind Esther as much as I think everyone else that was on the two of you and Danny. um, (coughs) I don't mind her. She is one of my least favorite Dickens creations, but... Well, I think Jane certainly, Jane Eyre certainly puts her in relief, like shows you this is how this kind of thing should be done. But this is a problem with Dickens. And I think that I would put, to be honest, I would put Esther's flaws on a level with what will later become Rochester and Jane's relationship, Mm -hmm. and which ends up balancing out the other in wisdom. I still think the sum of wisdom comes out in favor of Dickens. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll get there, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Jake might not agree. Yeah, I do think it comes out in favor of Dickens. Does that mean I think Dickens is the better writer or that that, I don't know. Like the, well, I mean, yeah, we'll the talk better about writer this. is one thing. The better storyteller is another. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll have this discussion, but mm-hmm. there's a reason Dickens has more novels that are remembered. Well, arguably he wrote more. Because right. <laughs> he wrote a bunch. <laughs> Inarguably he wrote more. His stories are more remembered and loved than I think yeah. this, even this one. And this is a very well-loved story. Well, I think the best parallel, where this isn't the Dickens podcast, the best modern parallel we really have to Dickens would be either Stephen King or J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, sure, yeah. Bad writers, but great storytellers. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think that's true. And bad characters to an extent. Like you have to get past Dumbledore to get to the real value of Harry Potter. But Harry yep. Potter is arguably an amazing story. Oh, man. Well, this is where I first got... The first thought, the first time the thought came to me that she was a Victorian Jane Austen mm-hmm. was because Mrs. Reed reminded me of Mrs. Bennett and some of these other characters. Um, well, who's the one from uh, Mansfield Park? The cat from Harry Potter. Norris. Norris. Mrs. The Norris. That's right. <laughs> My favorite <laughs> character from Mansfield Park. I didn't know where you were going the with that. The cat from first, Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> she is the cat from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. It's a good mnemonic device. Yeah. <laughs> so this ability to create hateable characters who are actually three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. It's a very Jane Austian trait because yeah. Dickens, just because well, he was a Victorian and writing at the same time, he had these sort of uh, flat characters that weren't as formed. Mm-hmm. And here you have Mrs. Reed, and you actually do feel, end up feeling sympathy for her. You have that amazing chapter later on in the book where she goes back to visit her again. Mm-hmm. That's that's that is not <laughs> not my that is not my favorite section of the novel because it's not you know it's just it's not likable i guess but in terms of it's one of the best yeah in terms of just a it's well-written maybe the best part of the novel what it reminded me yeah godly even portion of the novel that's what it. it reminded me of was it's in mansfield park where she goes back to visit her family right mm-hmm. and it's an unhappy home and yeah 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 that sort of it's not it's completely subverts what you're expecting because mm-hmm. if dick's the, okay if dickens had written either of these sections what would have happened mansfield park she would have gone home and it would have been the silly but yet lovable poor family who was being downtrodden and sick. And you would have had one child in the corner coughing and saying, so systems, please bring us back some money so that we can survive. And you would have been crying and all this stupid sentimentality that would have been tied into it. With this one, she would have gone back to Mrs. Reed and Mrs. Reed would be on her deathbed. She'd kind of be angry, but then at the end, you'd have her admit her wrong. She'd and, break, yeah. And she'd ask for forgiveness. But yeah, Bronte doesn't give that to us. Yeah, but she gives us Jane's desire for that, which is even better. The moment where she's just yeah. like wants Mrs. Reed to just take her hand and instead Mrs. Reed is Clams cold. Up. Yeah, she's in bondage. What, what it actually feels like is that it was completely inevitable. And part of what that does is it makes it feel like a miracle that she even bothered, mm-hmm. that she felt enough compunction of conscience, conscience to mention the letter yeah. in the first place. But- you know, you see Mrs. Reed, her baby step of repentance, if mm-hmm. she had one, was to mention that Jane has a living relative who's trying to bequeath a fortune to her that she was trying to cover up and, and keep her from getting. Like, as a way of, she's got this dumb plot point that she has to get out in that with that letter and with the relative, but instead of just being like, like that's another thing that Dickens might do poorly is I'm the person showing up with the plot point. Here's the plot point. Oh, he would have done. Yeah. That's actually what I was thinking is um, even those silly plot points that she has to get in, like she has to find a way to make her rich. Yeah. And Dickens would have done a very poor job at that. 
Well, he I would have done say, it happily and joyfully. But have you ever noticed that authors get tired as they write, and the ends of novels are often a little sketchier than the beginning? We just had something. What was it? Yes, we had persuasion that felt a little bit like this. Anna Karenina. Yeah, Anna Karenina. Even although I, I dare say, well, no, not Anna Karenina. Really? Well, the ending for Anna, not so much, but the ending for Levin. Well, I think the ending for Levin is Tolstoy just throwing up his hands and saying, "I'm not a good enough Christian to." do this. Yeah. I mean, but he he would have been happy That's to do true. it, I think. And I think you're even going to find with War and Peace that Tolstoy just doesn't stop. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, Tolstoy is a steamroller. He's going to take the train as far as he can. It just ran out of track because he wasn't a moral enough man. The stuff man that happens actually... when Russia invade when France invades Russia. Mm-hmm. That's like towards the last quarter of the book. Man, it's such it's good heartbreaking stuff. Well, we're looking forward to it. Anna Karenina still might be my favorite book that we've ever done. Yeah. I've probably said other ones on other when podcasts. Pierre touches the bark of the tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is there's a uh, a dumb little meme mm-hmm. that has to do with sermon prep, and it's probably used for other things, but it's it's visual and it's worthless for our audience. You should describe it. Well, I'll close my eyes and I'll see if I get it. You've you've got this drawing of a horse. Mm-hmm. And it's moving from left to right, and it's like Monday sermon prep on a timeline, Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday lunch, Saturday, or other ways of doing it have like intro, illustration, blah, 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 blah. And on the left, you have this very beautiful, highly detailed right thing, and then it ends with like <laughs> this square-faced kid drawing <laughs> yeah. scribbled at the end with a stick leg. and yeah, so I it's think like, everybody who writes something on under a deadline feels that way. I, certainly my sermons feel like it. They're, I have this really polished introduction and then... Well, then you, you begin to understand why guys like Ishiguro take 10 years to write a novel. Oh, absolutely. Because that's exactly what he does. And then he spends the next nine years making sure everything else is shaded in. Who, who, who was it that said a great novel is never completed, it's only abandoned? Some know. famous person said that. Sounds famous, yeah. Yeah, sounds famous, yeah. <laughs> Somebody famous said that, and I think it's true. But why did I bring that up? Oh, because all the stuff, all the plot point where she suddenly gets rich, a lot of the stuff at the end with, I just randomly showed up at my family's place, and then we found out that they owed it. That stuff feels rushed as compared to the care that she takes with, it's still good, it's still quality stuff, but it feels a little rushed compared to the care that she takes with setting up a whole scenario and telling a really detailed, rich story with Mrs. Reed in order, not in order, but as a way of getting out this plot point about the will earlier on in the novel. I don't know if people caught on to this, but this book was kind of eye-opening to me in conjunction with thinking about Dickens. Yeah, so. you, you, it's certainly a comparison point. Like, Yeah, it's, it's like a step of maturity for me. a step of maturity for you, there you go. I still love Dickens. Yeah. But it's interesting. Having him compared to, I'd be interested to go back to Vanity Fair now because I used to really be resistant to Vanity Fair and I only made it like halfway through that book. Mm-hmm. I've never actually finished, but I, th- I wonder if I wouldn't like it better now. We should do it one of these days. Yeah. All right. Mrs. Reed. So we got through with now. We go to the school. Brocklehurst. He's another one of these guys that Dickens, I think. A pretty Dickensian name. The very Dickensian. Dickensian name and Dickensian character. Yeah. yeah but, absolutely. But she pulls it off. Grad grind and. Those sorts of characters. Mr. Squeers from Nicholas Nickleby is like that. Just these... Mr. Murdstone. <laughs> Mr. Murdstone. And these names are amazing. <laughs> well, <laughs> your, your boy J.K. Rowling or your girl J.K. Rowling likes those kinds of names too. Oh, yeah, she's sat that. at the feet of Dickens, yeah. She sat at the feet of Dickens, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was going to say... She's old. Say what? <laughs> she must be old. <laughs> she must be old. Yeah. <laughs> she has a time machine. Yeah. She's Doctor Who. She's Doctor Now Who. that Doctor Who can be a woman. I was going to say, before we stop talking about the... Mrs. Reed, the section where she goes back, the portrait of those two sisters is really great too. That's probably the closest she oh. comes to like Austin or something like that. Yeah. The yeah, one that's sort of like Mary versus Mary from Pride and Prejudice versus Versus Lydia. Lydia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's really and well done. I think John Reed, I mean, she, there was some reality with her own brother who was it what was his name? Oh, he had a dumb name. Brandwine or something Brand, like that. Brand Brain Brainville. Brandville, yeah. And he had died, well, he went and got addicted to opium and stuff exactly like what seems to have happened to John Reed. So there was some historical reality to that, but the I was not expecting that to be the way the story went for John. Right. Well, he, and she somehow he managed, would die in a corner. She managed to do that without feeling vindictive. Yeah. I really liked that. I, yeah. mean, I, I guess 
if I haven't made it clear, I really hate in a story when it feels like somebody's setting up somebody just to knock them down. I always think villains, I don't know, I always end up feeling bad for a villain like that. I've yeah. talked about this a thousand times on the booking, I know. Well, but, a lot of that even has to do with the timing of it, right? Like, so what she does is she uses all of that stuff. Jane just wants a family. Right. Jane just wants a family. And so Jane will go, Jane will hope for redemption, Jane will be sad that this stuff happened, and also not sad because she still hates these people, but also sad because she's more mature and she just really wants a family. And that all plays into how all of that works and sets up how she's going to feel about her family when she finally gets a family later. Mm -hmm. Like, just structure, the structure of the story and the timing of where and how these things come into play. It's before she even... You know, she's pining for Rochester right? still when she goes and has that whole visit. So she's just never found anybody that could reciprocate her love. She's except for Helen, right? And Miss Temple a little bit. Like she's never had anybody. Miss Temple, Helen died. Miss Temple left. Like Rochester's out of her reach. She's never had any family. And so just so much of making these things work, I think, it even is just sort of like big picture when and how do we place this in the story, a story of Jane's life and Jane's growth? Like, yeah, totally. Well, and it feels, it feels real life. And that when your long forward revenges finally come, when judgment falls, it's never God's timing is never our timing. And you never quite enjoy it the way that you, not that she's sincere, not that she's trying to play with this idea. I I don't think this is intentional on her part, but it just, it feels very true to me that by the time, you come back around to the people that, you know, the bully that you hated in high school or whatever. You meet him again at the school reunion. It's like, oh, you're a sad person. And, you know, and I, and I don't take any pleasure in that. You, the person that you hated, the person that you were mean to is not really me. Like that was me from a long time ago. That person's dead. We're, those people are both dead, actually. And now I'm just looking at something that's that's new. that's new. And it can be sad or happy or whatever it is. But she really captures that well. Let's talk about Helen. Brandon, your thoughts? Um, Hell in Burns, one yeah. of my Halloween names. I think that's probably what she's doing. That was some strange theology she was spouting that was mm-hmm. supposed to look like a wisdom. A universalist, but the fact, I mean, the selling point of Helen Burns, The, I mean, I don't know if you guys are going to argue that she didn't pull Helen off, but the way to pull Helen off is to have her be somebody who has really, really suffered mm-hmm. and is really, really suffering. And she has suffered under Brocklehurst and she suffered under these conditions and she's suffer- suffering under tuberculosis. And she has an edge about her too that's kind of cool. Well, the problem with it is St. John, because when you come back around to St. John doing the same thing and then it's just like Charlotte Bronte, the authoress, venerates the crap out of it with St. John. Yeah, St. John is gross. That really throws into question whether... When I read Helen, I didn't have a problem with Helen. I know people have a problem. I think I seem to remember you when you hit it, when you were freshly hitting it, Jake, telling me you didn't know how you were going to feel. Yeah, I was was concerned about Helen. But I actually... Because Jane herself says... I didn't know how to feel. Like Dickens, it would be like, you know, this terrible thing happened to Helen and we're all supposed to feel sad. But Jane's always processing it like a real person would again. So yeah. there's the part where Helen, she gets whipped on her neck for some weird reason, which I'm glad we we don't do that in our schools. I'm against it. But and Jane's just like, no, I wouldn't let that happen to me, which is a much less, a much more real and a much less, yeah, uh, what's the word? Le- much less goody two shoes. Thing yeah. that like a Dickens poor suffering it's not martyr, sanctimonious or anything. Like and Jane, that. you know, when Helen dies, Jane's just like, did she go to heaven or was there just a black void? Jane's just processing it all like a real person, and yeah. she feels convicted and also and challenged, and also she doesn't quite know whether she buys into it. Yeah, and what it what it betrays is this sense from Bronte that you get throughout the thing, which is like there are these people that are. Bronte's a real person. Jane's a real person. There are these people out there that are otherly. Helen is a this otherly person in in Jane's life that she can't put her finger on. She can't touch. She can't, but is inspiring and and helpful and sweet. When she comes around and tries to define what makes that kind of person in Saint John, and gets it completely wrong, and it's, it's like creepy. That's weird. when it becomes yeah, a little well, Fifty just, Shadesy. Yeah, it's terrible. But. 
Yeah, in and of itself, the section with Helen didn't bother I me. I thought of Fifty Shades too. Multiple points. Well, it didn't these. help that she had a, she would get elected in a red or, room. Or, uh, <laughs> well, yes, there's that. <laughs> or, or I thought of uh, disclaimer: I have not read Fifty Shades of Grey. I am aware of it because people are aware of it. So, thank you. The stupid Twilight crap. Mm-hmm. I thought of that too. This is proto all that stuff in some ways. It is proto all that stuff, but I'm going to say what. I don't know what the analogy is, but this is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Either that no, stuff no, no, is. No, no, I mean, no, no, like no. this is this is like the real deal. Like, this listen, is- I love this book. I don't want anybody who is listening to think otherwise. But Bronte's view of men and what makes a good man—it's it's bad. It's bad. I'm it's guessing bad. that's next episode. That's going to be next episode. Yeah, but yes, we'll get to. But no, this. I just want to say this book is like what's the name of Heisenberg's drug? Meth. Yeah, but doesn't it was like Crystal blue steel, meth. blue blue something? Yeah, there's like a special name. This book's like that stuff, and Twilight's like the bad stuff, the the bad junk stuff that's cut with soap, soap or something. Stuff that's cut with soap. Yeah, that's the best analogy I could think of, and it's a terrible analogy. No, it's great. But <laughs> wow, uh, Twilight's <laughs> like hamburger. This is like steak. Steak. This is like a <laughs> this is like wagyu. Yeah. Wagyu. Yeah, wagyu. Oh, it's like Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Kobe beef. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kobe beef, yeah. Brandon, you look like a man with a thought. I'm trying to figure out what I think about Helen. What do you so. think about Helen? Um, I, I teared up at her death scene. I'm did. not afraid to admit it. Too. Well, maybe I'm a heartless animal because I did not. A heartless animal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I cried at the death scene. I. Well, I just thought Jane Eyre herself, she's such a great character. Jane Eyre is so, what a, what a well-written book. Uh, if I haven't said it yet, I really enjoyed reading this book. I and mean, Jake was just saying he really liked this book. I really liked just in terms of a book that I like scanning my eyes over the pages and absorbing <laughs> the information. I don't know whether it all adds up or not. We'll decide by the end of these podcasts. But just as a thing to be reading, this is my favorite thing we've read in a long time. I think yeah, it was it was just fun. It reminded me why I like that books. first third, that first book, that first volume, the first act. It's amazing. It was just amazing. Was I just think each moment. act is maybe really? a little worse than the one that came before it. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I think that's true. I like the tension with Rochester pretty well, but then the way that everything resolves in that third act is. Uh, and for, once we get like Gypsy Rochester and some well, of that like, stuff. that stuff gets weird. Yeah, I did like. I thought it was very moving the way that it just her death was handled very simply. Mm-hmm. She was dead. Her grave is in Brocklebridge Church for 15 years. After her death, it was only covered by a grassy mound. But now a gray marble tablet marks the spot inscribed with her name and the word Resergom or whatever the hell you you say that. But I think it marks what she does really well. She mixes some, not not even necessarily philosophical thoughts, but just musings and Mm -hmm. narrative ramblings with then really concrete details that she'll add in. She's really great at that. Yeah. It's like when she first meets Rochester, I think she's off in the woods thinking and she's thinking about things. And she's musing over her life and then suddenly you have like this very vivid scene at a pond and Rochester falling and you I mean you get the sense of winter and everything and she's really great at that she's a, gift, a very gifted writer and so my issue with Helen was that she reeked just a tiny bit and she doesn't like there are Dickens characters like my least favorite Dickens character is what was his name Joe the chimney sweep or whatever mm-hmm. from, yeah. from Bleak House and the way that he handles his death is awful just so sentimental. Mockish. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of that with Helen in the sense that like, you are sure then, Helen, that there is such a place as heaven and that our souls can, can get it to it when we die. I'm sure there is a future state. I believe God is good. I can resign my immortal part to him without any misgiving. God is my father. God is my friend. I love him. I believe he loves me. This sort of thing, you try to imagine this actually coming out of the mouth of any young teen or older child. It is a little bit unrealistic. It's this fantasy that there is this angelic being who has tapped into some of the transcendental. And this pr- comes from her romantic ideals, I imagine. Her having read a lot of Byron and a lot of Keats, where you have these characters who have tapped into something beyond and have these visions. So Helen has a little bit of that stink around her for me that, yeah, you, would, that, that you would get with like Jane Eyre later on having the drawings that she would do for Rochester and some of the gypsy weirdness that would come in later. This tendency that you would see with like Byron and Keats and Shelley, those guys, towards the visionary as being some like maple syrup tap into truth. Mm-hmm. So I, that's what bothers me about Helen is that element. I, I think Jane Eyre does that. I have to say, taken by itself without the rest of the novel <clears throat> to judge it by, 
and all the weirdness that you're referring to. Helen, actually, to me, I have to disagree. She does not really have that stink because Jane herself is aware of that stink and is reacting to it in a realistic sort of, you know, Jane's like, is this too good to be true? And that to me feels very relatable. So maybe you could even say Helen's just a device for Jane's self-actualization or whatever you want to call it. There's surely a less dumb way of saying it than that. But insofar as Helen is a device for Jane's growth, she's a very effective one, I think. What I appreciate well, the other in- thing that you have to remember in all of this is that Helen is Jane's recollection of her first and only friend <laughs> from a friendless childhood. The first person to ever stand up for her, the first person she ever talked to, first person that, that wasn't a doll or a nurse. And so you can even forgive, like, it's all presented pretty realistically, but even if there is a little bit a of sheen a, of sentimentality, of a, yeah, of a glow about Helen. But then you have multiple moments. I don't recollect them all off the top of my head, but you have multiple moments like where Helen takes the whipping or different things where Helen's making the wrong choice, or at least Jane wonders, you know, where Jane's Jane and we as an audience or as a reader are like, well, gosh, Helen, did you really have to go take it that far? Like, why don't you do better? Like, it doesn't feel like the author herself is rubbing your nose in how great Helen is. At least I didn't get that feeling. I, c- I could see how you can make that argument, but... The part that bothered me the most was when they go to Miss Temple's office and Miss Temple and Helen have the conversation. And she doesn't tell us what they say, but they conversed of things I had never heard of, of nations and times past, of countries far away. And she just keeps going on. And But I think what Jake was saying is true. You have to see this as also having the patina of distance to it. The golden haze. Yeah, not that kind of golden haze. She's looking back fondly on this childhood memory. There's going to be some uh, distortion to that. And then also, what I did like about her treatment of Helen is Helen doesn't become some angelic savior, even. Helen just kind of disappears from the story. I don't even know if Helen's mentioned again. Well, also, is she mentioned again? I think she 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 says something about her. Like she she is she is in a sentence. Like I could not help but remember my old. I think. Yeah, but she doesn't become like this. She's not constantly guiding star. Yeah, she, she's not the ghost that. Which dogs. I liked that, and I also liked the very. So one of my favorite parts of this is where you find out that even though she valued and loved Helen, that there was this other girl that she would spend more time with, and they would gossip and just talk about low things. Together. Exactly. And then she would say, you know, why was I not hanging out with Helen, reader? And she's like, I don't know. Yeah, those kinds of details really ground it and take away any And any so the sort fact of that Helen's kind of this ghostly figure, like you were saying, this otherly sort of person, I can buy that. Well, she was the, also the like 10 or still, 11. She was 11. Yeah, 14. Which, of course, yeah. no, when yeah. Jane was 11, when she first mm-hmm. went to... And so it's like an 11-year-old boy looking up to this 14-year-old. Which, of course, is not in any way connected to anybody else. Yeah. In literature. But it's all over the place. She just needed that lightning scar. She did. Yeah. But but yeah, but Helen was how old did you say? <laughs> she was fourteen. So three 14. years older. So, I mean, but that's a lot when you're eleven. No, it's definitely yeah, yeah. a lot, yeah. I, I mean when I that I love that's that scene in Mrs. Temple's office. It's a difference between Elliot and Alyssa. Right. Yeah. That's a big difference. Well, and I can I I don't have a specific memory, but I know I've been in that situation where I have a friend who just like when I was that age where I have a friend who just feels like because they've suffered or because something's happened or just because they're a couple of years older or whatever, they're beyond. And maybe they're talking to an adult. Like that office scene to me is actually pretty relatable. Like I've been there. I couldn't tell you when or why or how, but I know I've had that situation when I was a kid where... And I like the fact that she doesn't tell us what they said. Well, she couldn't. She couldn't yeah. do justice. That's the problem with Dickens is he would try and give it to us and he'd fall flat on our face or his face. But I like that. And so there are things that she does narratively to make it work. In the end... There are things about Helen that bother me. It doesn't bother me. I don't know. Well, oh, hey. Um, we agree to disagree. Or maybe we no, disagree to it. No, we don't. I think you need to change. Well, Nathan, maybe one day I'll see the great beyond and be on the same level as you. Maybe one day you'll go to the upside down. And Is that where you've been? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <Okay. laughs> um, Hopefully you didn't bring anything back with you. <laughs> the other thing is Jane does not, like you said, Helen's not a guiding star. And Jane consistently through the rest of her life, through the rest of the story, makes all the opposite choices. <laughs> That like she's never like Helen and she never thinks she has to be like Helen and the lessons of Helen kind of wash off of her. I mean, she just decides like, I'm going to go for this sexy guy and I'm going to get what I want and I'm going to stand up to people and I'm going to, you know, I'll be self-sacrificial where I can, but I'm going to make sure and tell the reader that St. John is the one who gets the last two paragraphs of praise. Yeah, which is weird. What was Charlotte Brown thinking? We'll get to that next week. It's weird. 
Speaking of weird. Donor shout outs. Donor shout outs. Hey. Brennan? Yeah. Jake, why don't you shout them out? And Brandon, why don't you say their names with a French accent? Oh, oui, oui. All right. Uh, da, 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 da. I will very gladly do this. Nedo. <laughs> <laughs> Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Oh, Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. The immortal, oh, I shouldn't do it. The immortal Chelsea C. The immortal Chelsea C. The immortable. Is that how you say it in France? I don't know. I don't know. The immortal. Chelsea C. Chelsea C. Uh, Nathan, C, not me. C, Chelsea, C. Nathan, not Nathan. Nathan, not Nathan. That was more Russian than. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Ah, uh, yeah. Mon. Uh, mon. 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 Hey there. How's it going, my good friends? <laughs> what are you, Jeff Bridges now? <laughs> yeah. uh, mon, what are, what's, what, what's French for a friend? Mon ami? Mon yeah, ami. sure. Mon ami. Mon ami. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Beam. Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Oh, the Lily of the Valley. Jake, you're welcome to do a French accent anytime you want. I, I, just, I am doing, doing my French, French accent. Oh, this is your French accent. Oh, yeah. sit. Andrew and Esther are the lovebirds. Andrew and Esther are the lovebirds. Ah, Andrew and Esther the lovebirds. <laughs> the inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. The inscrutable Jenny Z. Incroyable. <laughs> John and Jill and John and Jill and Laura. John and Jill is a bit of a Keith Master. I have no idea what you just said. The Keith Master. The Keith Master. Oh, the oh, Keith, Master. Keith Master. Hey, Jake. I need to have some stuff. David's Mighty Men Trucking. It's David's Mighty Men Trucking. J and Katie. Oh, no, sorry. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese. Oh, my beloved mother, the best. Fromage. My beloved Mother Beth. Nathan's beloved Mother Beth. I don't remember what name I gave him last time. The the Wizard of Yore. Fletcher <laughs> Fletcher, the woe bedraggled Wizard of Yore, we'll call him this time. Fletcher, the woe bedraggled Wizard of Yore. Oh, this poor Fletcher. He's woe bedraggled. <laughs> He's a Wizard of Yore. <laughs> you do not want to be bedraggled with woe. A yachtful Anthony Dodger. The Artful Anthony Dodger. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Oh, the Artful Anthony Dodger. I don't know, man. I can't do a French accent anymore. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jeremy, the dark-hooded Lord of Death. <sighs> Jeremy, the dark-hooded Lord of Death. Mon frère. Incandescent, beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful. DJ Sammy G. <laughs> the incandescent, beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous. Oh, 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 oh. DJ Sammy G. Yes. The beautiful, the gorgeous, the incandescent DJ Samage. The even more beautiful and incandescent, uh, wonderful, marriageable Meredith. The marriageable Meredith. The marriageable Meredith? <laughs> My Elven princess of all light and happiness, Joanna. Wow. The elven princess of all light and happiness, Joanna. The elven princess of all light and happiness, Joanna. Oh, that's, that's poetry coming from <laughs> <laughs> this very realistic French prince. Rock and Ryan and Judo Judith. Rock and Ryan and Judo Judith. Nice Rock and Ryan and Judo Judith. And the greatest donor shout-out name, Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Oh, is it Danny the Dude? Benny and Dana T, the lovebirds. Benny and Dana T, the lovebirds. The Benny and the Dana, these are the birds. Rochester and Jane themselves, Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Rochester oh, and Jane themselves, Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Is he ugly? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the Eric and Catherine, mm. the lovebirds. Mon frère. Mon frère. Uh, Tough tone. Professor <laughs> X and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Monsieur Professor X and Madame Lady X. Thanks for listening, everybody.
was written and produced by me, Nathan Oberson. It was executive produced by Jacob Menzel. Nathan Oberson was performed by Brandon Chastain, Nathan Oberson, and Jacob Menzel. Brought to you by patreon.com forward slash the booketing. In other words, brought to you by all you fine folks. What you do is you go to patreon.com backslash Brandon. No, Nathan. No. Forward slash What are you, some kind of a moron? When does everything have a backslash? I don't know why I said that. I will backslash you with a knife if you try and go to... A bad easy, URL. Easy there. I won't really backslash I've got it. so many backslashes, it's not funny. Have you been backslashed a lot with knives? By you, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> but I would go to patreon.com. How's that for a transition? I would go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing and support us for the price of a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, twenty-one dollars, a thousand dollars. You can support this work. We'd really appreciate it. It helps us pay the bills and keep the light on, lights on. And We have people... one light hanging from the ceiling. Yep. <laughs> one dingy light in this uh, torture chamber that we record in. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. 